Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally from magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. Captain Paul Watson's Sea Shepherd fleet is in the water right now, protecting marine wildlife in our oceans by whatever means necessary. Even before that, he was a founding member of legendary activist organization Greenpeace, and he's risked his life for the animals more times than he can remember. This was an epic combo. Check it out. Watson, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. You know, I like to kick it off with talking about the first adventure, the first thing that really inspired you and uh, your love for wilderness and you especially for animals. I was raised in a East Coast fishing village, uh, which is was quite rural. And uh, when I was 10, I uh, spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers and uh, had a great time. Uh, but uh, the next summer when I went back, when I was 11, uh, I couldn't find any beavers in that pond, and I began to ask questions and found out that the trappers had come in that winter and taken them all. So I got really angry, and uh, uh, you know, I, that winter I walked the trap lines and uh, freed animals from the traps and destroyed the traps. So that was really uh, started my life as an activist at 11, destroying leg hole traps. How did the people react when they discovered that those traps were destroyed? Well, they didn't free? know it was me. <laughs> but I um, Some vigilante, some 10-year-old vigilante was out but, there. But I did get in trouble for d- disrupting duck hunts by flying kites, you know, that look like eagles over the... Uh, over where they they were hunting the ducks and blowing whistles and going into the uh, woods uh, during deer hunting season with a bugle. Oh <laughs> man, that's incredible! I think that's a bit of a product of where you were growing up. It was it was on the water. It was by a fishing village. It was past Macquarie Bay, which is the highest tides in the world. I think it's eighty five foot tides in the springtime. And uh, in fact, uh, you, when you were standing on the beach at low tide, you couldn't see the ocean. It was that far away. Now, I understand you were the youngest member of Greenpeace. Tell me a little bit about what started that journey and how you ended up in that situation. Well, I attended a, a demonstration in uh, October 1969. I was 18 at the time. And uh, it was put together by the Quakers in the Sierra Club, and it was to protest nuclear testing at Amchitka Island up in the Aleutians. And since the uh, Anchorage earthquake was still in everybody's memory, uh, we formed a group called the Don't Make a Wave Committee because of the tsunami which hit Vancouver Island and Hilo, Hawaii. And so we said, okay, what can we do? And now the Quakers had taken a boat to Bikini Atoll to protest that blast in 1956. So we decided, okay, well, let's get a boat and sail up to Amchitka. And uh, at one of the meetings, uh, Bill Darnell, who was the cook on our first boat, he, uh, somebody left the meeting, flashed a peace sign and said, uh, peace. And uh, Bill said, make it a green peace. And uh, <laughs> Bob Hunter said, hey, that's a great name for the boat. So we called it the, the, the boat, the green peace. So oh, that came great. before the organization. On that voyage, I was, uh, was uh, 
second mate uh, on the second boat because two boats went up there. And the first boat went up there, and uh, they didn't blow out. They delayed it. Mm-hmm. And so it was coming down. And the second boat, we, we were on our way up there, and they detonated the bomb uh, two days ahead of schedule before we arrived. So we were about 500 miles away when the bomb went off. But the good thing about it, that there was no further testing. All the publicity that we generated, in fact, we also had John Wayne up there hunting for us for, oh my God. for being commie, socialist, peacenik. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, they detonated the the bomb, but uh, never again. So it shut it down completely. I mean, it sort of started your work with marine life. Yeah, and that, what happened? Well, see, I had been working. I was in the Canadian Coast Guard. And, yeah. uh, I was in the Norwegian Merchant Marine. So I was actually one of the only people in Greenpeace who had any sea experience. <laughs> But uh, everybody else was just on a boat. Yeah, pretty much, because they're all journalists, right? <laughs> and uh, in '74, uh, uh, we we decided to do something about the whales. That was the first schism in Greenpeace, because, like I said, it was the Sierra Club and, and the Quakers. Quakers wanted nothing to do with saving the whales. Yeah. And if you recall, they were the ones who owned the the Yankee whaling. Boats, of course, the yeah, they're opposed to each so other. So they actually dropped out, leaving uh, the Green faction. The Peace faction left, leaving the Green faction, and uh, so uh, we came up with this idea to. Uh, to save the whales by putting our bodies uh, between the harpoons and the whales. We were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time. We thought that would work. <laughs> It'll have that effect. And uh, so that's what happened. And in June of 1975, we uh, located, searched for, located, and uh, confronted the Soviet whaling fleet, only 60 miles off the coast of California. And uh, wow. Bob and I put ourselves in a position in front of the harpoon uh, and to, to block the path of the harpoon. And you came across a dead whale, right? And that was undersized at the time. Yeah, prior to uh, blocking them, we found a, a dead whale that was undersized, and we, uh, we uh, filmed that then. But when we were in front of them, we, we, you know, the tactic which we had been developing was uh, you know, to block. Mm. And uh, this worked for about 20 minutes until the captain on the, uh, the harpoon vessel came racing down the catwalk and screamed into the ear of the harpooner. Then the captain looked at us, smiled, and brought his finger across his throat. And that's when I realized Gandhi was not going to work that day. And uh, <laughs> about um, a couple of minutes later, there was a horrific explosion, and this 250-pound uh, uh, explosive harpoon, harpoon flew over our head, slammed into the backside of a female in the pot of eight sperm whales that were running in front of us. And uh, she screamed. It was like a woman screaming in pain. And she rolled on her side, and there's blood everywhere. And suddenly, the largest whale in that pod slapped the water with his tail and disappeared and swam right underneath of us and mm-hmm. threw himself out of the water straight at the harpooner on the Soviet vessel. But they were ready for him with an unattached harpoon, pulled the trigger, point-blank range, hit him in the head. He screamed. He's rolling about in agony on the surface. And I caught his eye. And suddenly he disappeared and I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming at us real fast and he came up and out of the water at an angle so that the next move was to fall right on top of us mm-hmm. and crush us and as his head rose out of the water and his eye was right there I mean so close I could see the reflection of myself in the in the, really? in the whale's eye I, I got this feeling or understanding that he understood what we were trying to do because mm-hmm. I could see the effort he made to pull himself back and then he he could have very easily crushed you in that moment he did and he, he as his head uh, went back in the water I saw his eyes disappear beneath the surface and he died and so I owe my life uh, to, to that particular whale but as we sat there and the sun was setting in the middle of the Soviet whaling fleet and I said to myself why are we doing this why mm-hmm. are people killing whales you can't eat whale sperm whales it's for the oil right and uh, one of the most valuable uses of sperm spermaceti oil was to uh, for lubricating a high heat resistant machinery specifically intercontinental ballistic missiles yeah military obviously so i said here we are 
destroying this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, self-aware, sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it just struck me. <laughs> We're insane. Yeah, absolutely. And, and destroying the very thing that gives us life as well. As, you know, whales is a crucial part of our ocean cycle. Yeah, back then, nobody really was aware of that connection. Right. But, you know, we certainly learned it from it. But I remember uh, in 1986 when we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet. And, uh, <laughs> that was an incredible... Like, Google that, guys, if you haven't already heard about that story. That was an incredible story. You can tell us a little bit about it right now, though. But uh, what happened is that I had a former colleague from Greenpeace, because uh, I left Greenpeace in 77, mm. and he came up and says, I just want you to know, Paul, that what you did in Iceland was reprehensible, criminal, unacceptable. And uh, I said, yeah, 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 but uh, so what? <laughs> and he said, well, I think you should know what people in this movement think about what you did. And I said, John, I, I don't really care. We, you know, I mean, we didn't yeah. sink those whaling ships for you yeah. or for Greenpeace or for any other uh, human being. We sank those whalers for the whales. Yeah, absolutely. And I said, you find me one whale anywhere on this planet who disagreed with what we did that day, <laughs> and I promise you I'll never do it again. And I like how they try to fall back on their laws. And again, when that first occurrence, when you saw that first whale that was undersized, they're breaking laws out there you know, left and right. There's just nobody out there seeing it. Well, that's what we do. I mean, what Sea Shepherd does is intervene against illegal activities. All of our uh, opponents are, are criminals, mm. uh, but they're very powerful criminals. Right. So uh, Iceland at the time was uh, in violation of the International Whaling Commission's commercial uh, moratorium and commercial whaling. Now, to show what happened, after sinking the fleet and destroying the whale processing plant, we actually shut down their operations for 17 years. It took them that long wow. to recover. Imagine the whales that oh, were saved because of that situation. But after what happened is that you know I, I wrote to the Icelandic government. I said, look, we take responsibility for our actions. So what are the charges? Mm-hmm. No answer. So finally, a year later, in January of 1988, I got on a plane and flew to Reykjavik. And I was met there by all these police officers, the chief immigration officer. He says, uh, how long do you intend to stay in Iceland, uh, Captain Watson? I said, I don't know, five minutes, five years, you know, <laughs> you tell me. And they said, well, we have to go for interrogation. I said, okay, uh, let's go to interrogation. And they said, are you admitting to sinking these ships? Yeah, you know we sank them. We're going to sink the other two at the first opportunity. <laughs> and uh, they put me in jail overnight. The next morning, two police officers came and escorted me to the airport, put me in a plane to fly back to New York. And uh, the justice minister in Iceland stood up that morning in parliament, or the, the Althing, which is their parliament, and said, uh, who the hell does he think he is? He comes into our country and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. Wow. Because they knew that to put me on trial would be to put themselves on trial. It'd be worse for them, absolutely. I'd like to welcome a new partner to this endeavor, Haidus Tequila. Haidus means to pause or break a sequence, which I believe is a great message. I'd always been a bourbon or whiskey guy until recently I started dabbling with tequila, especially in the summer. I met the founder of Haidus, who's a fascinating guy and has done his due diligence in Mexico. Check them out on Instagram at Haidus Tequila. A lot of the documentaries, a lot of television that we watch, it's, it's a lot of doom and gloom. A lot of people get upset and are crushed by um, what's happening to our oceans, what's happening to our coral reefs. Where do you see the bright spots? Where do you see people doing good? Obviously, your crew is part of that. Well, I feel that as long as there's people alive, <laughs> we yeah. have some hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always very, very... Um uh, optimistic. I, I learned a lesson uh, back in 1973 when I was I volunteered for the American Indian Movement as a medic during the occupation of Wounded Knee, and uh, we were surrounded by 3,000 uh, federal, you know, troops, uh, U.S. Marshals, 82nd Airborne. They're all shooting at us and that. And I went to Dennis uh, Banks and, and Russell Means. I said, "Look, you know, we don't have 
any hope of winning here? Why are we here? Hmm. And Russell Means told me something that stayed with me forever. He said, well, we're not here because we're concerned about winning or losing. We're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. We're here because it's the right place to be and the right time to do it. And uh, that stuck with me. So we don't really focus on the odds, and we don't focus on whether we're going to win or lose. We focus on doing. Hmm. And it's amazing how many things can be done by just focusing on what you're doing in the present. Because what we do in the present, of course, will affect uh, the future. Yeah. But as I always say, you know, there's been five major... Uh, extinctions in the planet's history. We're now in the midst of what the sixth major extinction, the Anthropocene. Right. And uh, will we survive it? Well, uh, what I've learned from the five major extinctions is that it takes about 18 to 20 million years to recover from a major extinction event. The Permian <laughs> extinction wiped out 97% of everything 250 million years ago. So, 20 years from 20 million years from now, be a very nice planet. We won't be here. So it's really not about saving the planet. It's right. about saving ourselves from ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And where do you see those, where do you see countries backing up what they're saying by legislation? Where do you see the bright spots? Some of the poorer countries actually are the most involved. So what we developed back in 2000 was a partnership program with Ecuador. Mm. And we still have that partnership almost 20 years later. That's great. Uh, so to protect the Galapagos National Park. And we provided a patrol boat, a canine unit, set up an AIS system and everything, and, and that's working really well. But since then, we now have partnerships with Liberia, Gabon, Tanzania, uh, Somalia, the Mexico, Peru, Costa Rica. Now, what that means is that we provide the ships and the volunteers, and they put on board the enforcement agencies, uh, the soldiers and the sailors, and uh, mm. so that gives us the authority to actually stop poachers. So we've been, we've, we're arresting poachers every every week, really. I think one of the elements that leads to a better engagement with the environment is experiencing it. You're a diver, you see the sea life up close, you had that experience with that whale. Where can people go to have an authentic experience or a transcendent experience with the environment that would lead them to have a, a deeper understanding of the world? Sometimes I'm reluctant to say because I don't want a lot of Of people course, to yeah, you don't know your, <laughs> but, your uh, secret havens. But I would say the most beautiful place that I've seen and have spent a total of almost 30 months in is Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Because there you can see a world untouched by humanity, for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, where the animals are not afraid of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's just, the beauty is just absolutely uh, incredible. And, but, uh, you know, the other problem is we have this incredible ability as human beings to adapt to diminishment. As things become more diminishment, we just say, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, there used to be beluga whales in Long Island Sound. Well, they're not there anymore. And what's worse, we've forgotten they were ever there. Right. And there's so many species that that's true. You know, people say, oh, I was diving at, uh, at Cocos Island, and it's incredible. I said, yeah, but you should have seen it 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right, yeah. You know, so you've adapted to that diminishment. I think the best thing is for people to volunteer on our ships. Then yeah. you get to go to places. There we go. Know, Absolutely. Go. We've had over 5,000 volunteers. And, and there you not only get to go to these places, you get to participate in protecting these places. Absolutely. Whether you're uh, on the beaches in Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Colombia protecting sea turtles, or whether you're pulling nets in the Sea of Cortez uh, from poachers, or you're patrolling off the coast of East or West Africa, uh, all of these opportunities are there. So you get to see places that are very difficult for most people to even see. Mm-hmm. and to participate in the actual protection of those places. Yeah, where are the danger spots right now? I mean, where are we, obviously we have the Vaquita, which is a part of another documentary coming up where we're 
close to the end of, of seeing that species on the world anymore. Well, if we um, have anything to do with it, we there will not be an extinction. Uh, I love I, you I, saying that, by the way. I That's amazing. I think we stopped it. If, it. if it wasn't for our activities for the last four years, it would be extinct right yeah. now. Yeah. But uh, we're pulling those nets as fast as they, as they get them in there. It can sometimes be dangerous, but, I mean, the stakes are worthwhile. You know, sometimes I get criticized because, you know, you ask young people to risk their lives to protect whales or dolphins or fish and everything, and how can you do that? And I said, well, you know, in our society, we ask young people to risk their lives and to kill people for flags and religion and real estate. So <laughs> I think this is a far more noble endeavor. Absolutely. And fulfilling, you know. I mean, tell me a little bit about the resources you guys had at the Sea of Cortez to, to, to fight the legal poaching going on there. Right now we have three vessels there, uh, the uh, Farley Moat, the Sharfie, and the uh, and the White Holly. And the White Holly just arrived. It's a former U.S. Coast Guard patrol, uh, a buoy tender, so it has the capacity. We just took 40 tons of marine debris from uh, Cocos Island. Mm. And uh, so we're taking all that uh, the plastic nets and having it re- recycled. Uh, four of our vessels are former U.S. Coast Guard Island-class patrol boats, really fast. And altogether we have uh, 12 ships in the fleet. The Ocean Warrior patrols on the uh, east coast of Africa, the Farley Moat, I mean the Bob Barker and Sam Simon patrol on the west coast of Africa. Uh, Sam Simon just returned from uh, the coast of uh, France to protect dolphins there. Mm. Uh, so we're the, the vessels can be anywhere really. Right. We're protecting the Great Barrier Reef, the Australian Bight. We stopped uh, BP and Chevron from drilling in the Australian Bight, and now we're fighting Stats Oil, which is a, foreign, a Norwegian oil company, to to prevent them from drilling there. And those have been successful campaigns. Uh, so. Really, I've always felt that the most powerful weapon in the world is a camera. Mm. You know, if you get the camera in their face and, you know, get that message out to everybody. So that's why I'm so, uh, you know, excited about the films that are coming out. Sea of Shadows, the Watson film uh, documentary, uh, you know, our Chasing the Thunder. Uh, all of these films are actually bringing these problems uh, before the before viewers around the world. And, and, you know, they're becoming aware of the problem. And also they see the opportunity to get involved mm. because the two messages that I, I try to convey in the film is one if the ocean dies we all die right so we all have to be involved in it this absolutely the most important thing on this planet is to protect biodiversity in the ocean because uh, th- that's the you know plankton for instance phytoplankton produces 70 percent of the oxygen we breathe and uh, since 1950 there's been a 40 percent diminishment in phytoplankton Phyto- Phyto- those odds don't don't sound no, great yeah phytoplankton disappears we all die right <laughs> that's some, right it's out of sight and out of mind for people but the second uh the second message is uh, that everybody has the ability to change the world all you need to do is harness the virtues of passion to courage and imagination and you can accomplish wonders mm. uh, so individuals are making difference i mean you've got a 16 year old girl who's championing uh, uh climate change you've got because of dying and Fosse, you got uh, mountain gorillas still surviving in Rwanda, you have Jane Goodall. Uh, it, it's individuals that make a difference. Governments never solve problems. They cause, right. they cause problems. The, it has to come from the passion of, uh, of individuals. Yeah. How are you sort of allocating your time? A certain amount of time on the boat, a certain amount of time getting the word out there through films like this? Well, the greatest thing is that what started as an organization is now a movement. Right. So I don't even have to be involved in many cases. <laughs> so we, we've been very good at delegating yeah. that. So, I mean, there's Sea Shepherd actions taking place around the world that I'm not even aware of. Mm. You know, I get a call, hey, uh, Sea Shepherd Nicaragua just saved these, these sea turtles. And I said, oh, we have a Sea Shepherd Nicaragua. I didn't know. That's uh, <laughs> incredible. So, but that's what I've always wanted to do is have a movement because, mm. you know, you can stop an individual. You can shut down an organization, but you can't shut down a movement. It's mm. out of control. And 
and so we're in over 40 countries right now and and uh, these are all separate entities yeah. that uh, you know and they take on their own projects plus they all contribute to the operation of the ships on the with Sea Shepherd Global do you still have room for another crew member we always have room thanks so much for being here Paul thank you Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels, at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel.